I think that we still live in a society where we fundamentally think that we are separate from other people. Uh, that um, we are sort of isolated minds that exist in isolated bodies um, that are fundamentally distinct from the other minds and bodies that we see uh, in the world. Um, and I don't want to get too philosophical, but I, I think that a lot of this um, does have its roots in um, the sort of Western philosophical tradition, um, start, starting with Descartes, um, positing that we, uh, that the I is fundamentally separate from the world, that I and the world um, are two uh, completely distinct categories that cannot be unified with each other. Um, so I think a psychedelics can really help to promote a sort of mindset in which that apparent boundary um, breaks down, um, where we really do see ourselves as a part of the world um, rather than uh, as separate from it. Boom. What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Don Sakyan. We are still in Cambridge in Massachusetts. We are now going to be talking about psychedelics, consciousness, and the cosmos. We have Kenneth Shinozuka and JJ Andrade joining us on the show. Hello, guys. Hey, thanks so much for having us. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm super pumped to talk to you both. I'm really excited. We have a lot to unpack about these three topics and so much more. For those that don't know, Kenneth Shinozuka and JJ Andrade are co-founders of Harvard Undergraduate Science of Psychedelics Club, which is dedicated to an interdisciplinary, philosophically motivated, and scientifically rigorous study of psychedelics and, more broadly, consciousness. And you can find all of their links in the bio below, and you can join their mailing list as well. All right, guys, let's start things off with our favorite question that we like asking. We love asking people, we find ourselves as stewards of Earth. What is your current take on the state of humanity? Yeah, so I think it's great to uh, situate this question in the context of um, this Alan Watts quotation that I once heard, which is something like, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the universe uh, is becoming aware of itself through our own eyes. Um, I can't speak as much about the state of humanity in terms of society, culture, and politics, but um, I think that this is a good place to start for me. Um, and the reason is that I think that we're in the rare point of human history where we really are becoming aware of both ourselves and also the universe. And the universe truly is, I think, becoming aware of itself through our own consciousness. Um, we're at a rare point where we can really understand the past of humanity, um, the history of humanity, and also uh, the past of the cosmos uh, and where it might be heading. Um, and uh, I think probably the place where we're making the most progress, at least on our awareness of ourselves, uh, is perhaps through neuroscience. Um, we're becoming incredibly aware of how, how our own brains function, uh, and therefore I think we're really at a point where we're becoming uh, very, very aware of ourselves in a way that humanity wasn't thousands of years ago when we didn't have the tools to understand our own brains. Um, yeah, very exciting point in the saga of humanity. It's a great synthesis, yeah. I'm perhaps a little bit more uh, nervous, I think, than Kenneth about the current state of humanity. Um, I think globally we're seeing you know, skyrocketing inequality, um, a decline in political liberalism and an increase in political authoritarianism and uh, reactionary beliefs. Um, so those are some, uh, the destruction of the environment, those are some things that I'm very nervous about for the future of humanity, but I do think there are reasons to be optimistic that those may, might be a local minima instead of um, the end of, uh, uh, of our civilization. Uh, the psychedelic renaissance that's going on right now in, in scientific research, I think is, as we're gonna be talking about later, uh, a huge development that could meaningfully change a lot of those things I was just talking about. Um, I think breakthroughs in a lot of fields of science from anti-aging to neuroscience are really going to change the way that we understand ourselves and the way that we uh, understand how human societies should function. So I think we are definitely at a critical moment in our history and it is up to us to decide whether that's going to be critically positive or critically negative. Yeah, this is a good on of both your ends. Uh, the, you went really deep into the current uh, state of things, and you went on this really big scale of things with a really deep uh, awakening of the universe becoming aware of itself. That was good. I like I like you guys are kind of like yin and yang in that a little bit. That was that was good. That was good. Let's get to the journeys. So. 
Uh, Kenneth, your background is very interesting. Kenneth has a powerful um, three-minute video uh, online of him at CES from 2016, um, where he uh, he founded a company um, called Safe Wander. And interestingly enough, it's due to one of his family um, members having dementia. And that got you interested in neuroscience and consciousness. And so I want you to unpack a little bit of that for us, and then we'll do JJ's afterward. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I grew up in a three-generation household, um, so I was very close to my grandparents when I was growing up. Um, my grandfather got dementia when I was four years old. Um, and growing up with him, uh, I was constantly exposed to the challenges of taking care of him. Um, we decided, uh, my, my family decided to take care of my grandfather uh, at our home. Um, and as his condition progressed, um, uh, he started wandering out of bed at night. Um, when my mother and I moved to New York City in the summer of 2012, uh, my grandfather was wandering out of bed at least once per night. Uh, and this put a lot of stress on my aunt, who was taking care of him at the time, um, because she had to stay awake all night to keep an eye on him, and, and even then often failed to catch him leaving the bed. Um, so I invented this device in high school called uh, Safe Wander, um, which would notify caregivers whenever dementia patients got up out of the bed at night. Um, and uh, eventually ended up commercializing the product and it's now currently selling uh, online and uh, we've uh, been able to help um, over a thousand uh, dementia patients with our device. Um, so when I uh, was applying to college, I was thinking that I was going to study neuroscience so that I could tackle uh, the problem of dementia. Um, Alzheimer's uh, is, um, I think, the uh, only major disease, uh, at least in the United States, uh, that has no uh, cure, uh, treatment, um, or uh, prevention. So um, uh, it's a huge, huge enigma. Uh, we really don't have that much of an idea of how to tackle it. Um, then I underwent a pretty major shift. Um, the uh, summer before uh, I went to college, uh, I had this period of great existential uncertainty. Um, and it was during this time that I found this book called The Power of Now, um, which very radically transformed my views on, on life um, and my place in the universe as well. Um, through The Power of Now, I got very interested in questions about consciousness, which are also inextricably linked to psychedelics. Um, and uh, after reading the book, I decided that I wanted to study consciousness not only in college, but also for the rest of my life. Um, so I am still doing research uh, on Alzheimer's currently uh, at, at uh, the Massachusetts General Hospital, um, which is affiliated with the Harvard Medical School. Um, uh, and my ultimate passion, though, uh, is to study consciousness, which I think is the greatest enigma uh, in the universe. Oh, uh, and I should also say um, that uh, I've uh, also been uh, documenting uh, sort of my, my progress in my thinking through uh, this blog that I started back in the fall of 2017, which is uh, called Blank Horizons, uh, which you can find at blankhorizons.com. So epic. I love the story. And there's just so much cool. Uh, there's the, the ability for us to be able to see how you came to where you did today through your journey, I think is quite evident. And sometimes it's, it can be hard to, to find that. And but you, it's it's very clear. And that's, that's really beautiful. And I'm your hardest enigma in the yeah, in the universe. That's so interesting with consciousness. Wow. All right. And then JJ's background, fascinated with science and religion from a young age, and now is super fascinated with biophysics, which is taking him really deep into consciousness and psychedelics. So yeah, give us that. Sure. Yeah. So probably my first major interest um, was religion. Uh, from the time I was very young, I was originally very fascinated with Eastern religions, you know, um, like yogic philosophies, Buddhism, Taoism, especially as they're interested in for a while. Uh, and then over time, that also became an interest in Western religions, the monastic traditions in Christianity and the mystical traditions in like Orthodoxy and Catholicism um, and, you know, uh, Sufism in Islam, things like that, Kabbalism and Judaism. And then... Uh, as I, I grew older, I also developed a very intense interest in science, especially biology and physics, because to me, uh, physics answered, you know, somewhat similar questions to what religion was trying to answer. What is the underlying order and structure to what's going on around us? Um, 
and I found that physics could answer those questions in ways that were testable and studyable, and that was really very appealing to me. So I decided when I went to college that I was going to study physics, and um, a quote of Einstein's that really resonates with me sort of in that way is, uh, I want to know the mind of God and the rest are just details. Um, <laughs> and as I sort of went through my, uh, that, well, for that reason, when people would ask me like, oh, but don't like, what do you want to do with that? I would say like, oh, I just want to study the extremely abstract theoretical stuff. And I don't care if it ever helps the world. That was a very naive take that I, I used to have. Uh, I don't believe that anymore. And that's partially why as I've, I've grown older, um, I've switched my focus more towards biophysics, both because one, biology is a subject that I've loved for a very long time. Uh, and two, I think it's an area that is m more able to have a positive impact on the human condition. And that's something that's been increasingly uh, important to me. Um, and yeah, so I'm still very interested in religion. I still take a lot of religious studies classes at Harvard. Um, and I still spend a good chunk of my time studying various mystical traditions and stuff like that and practicing myself. Um, but as far as career goes, I have decided to go in the scientific direction because I think that's the better way to make an impact on the world. Yeah, the, the passing time studying on what's been around thousands of years, finding meaning in life and then taking it on a scientific, trying to probe at the 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 code of of the world around us uh is yeah it's it's interesting you guys co-founding this uh org together i want i want before we get there i want to know your thoughts you guys worked really really hard to get into harvard it's very difficult to get into harvard harvard is also a it's a very prominent academic institution with a lot of smart people here around you at the same time it's also an undergraduate zoo in many ways. It's just the same type of behaviors as we see at other collegiate campuses. What is, how do you feel about, you know, we spent some time talking to Julia Shea about the architecture of the dormitories and how it's, you know, that, that and the amount of, 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 of uh, there's not really the one-on-one -on -one apprenticeship in the Bloom 2 Sigma, how you can perform two standard deviations above the control if you have an apprentice, right? All this type of, uh, type of stuff, um, if you have a mentor and you're an apprentice. So it's just like, what are your current thoughts on the state of your experiences at Harvard? Um, I have really, I'm, I'm graduating in May, so this is a very uh, timely question for me, so this month. Um, and I've really, really loved my time at Harvard. I think I'm, it was so fortunate to be able to have uh, a group of friends and a community of people who, no matter what my interests were, uh, no matter if I wanted to talk about policy, economics, physics, uh, biology, there was always someone who I could find who would be willing to talk about those things with me for, you know, hours upon hours without ever growing sick of it. And I think that's a very rare thing to find in a lifetime. Um, and that's something I'm extremely grateful for. Of course, like a lot of people probably have the concept of Harvard that is filled with, you know, uh, rich elitist people. Those people are there. Uh, I just don't, you know, associate myself with them very much. And there are a lot of extremely passionate, extremely driven people. And that's the best part of Harvard. It's not the classes, although those are great. It is, uh, the community of people that you find yourself in, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Kenneth? Yeah, um, so I had a pretty different experience from JJ, at least for the first two years that I was at Harvard. Uh, so I'm a junior now, I'm uh, at the end of my third year. Um, I was initially actually very dissatisfied with Harvard. Um, I was pretty confident that I was going to uh, take a leave of absence for about two years or maybe even drop out after my sophomore year ended. And I think that dissatisfaction largely stemmed from um, the fact that I really had a lot of difficulty finding people um, who were interested in the same topics that I was, namely consciousness, spirituality, and the sort of intersection of that in neuroscience and physics and philosophy. Um, and uh, uh, ultimately though, um, through uh, co-founding the Science of Psychedelics Club, uh, I was able to find a really great community of people, um, JJ included, um, who are interested in uh, these topics. And so I'm incredibly grateful to have found those people um, on campus. Um, to, to speak a little more to your, uh, to your point, uh, Alan, about how uh, Harvard, much like other colleges, is very much a zoo. Um, 
there are truly uh, some crazy opportunities that you get to have um, through Harvard. So uh, I am part of this uh, acapella group uh, called the Crocodilos, um, which I joined my sophomore year. Um, every year, um, the Crocodilos, uh, Crocs for short, uh, embark on this summer tour um, where we travel uh, all around the world, usually to Asia, Australia, Europe, and maybe a couple of other continents. Um, uh, and um, the, the tour is entirely paid for um, through the revenue that we make um, with concerts. Um, and so it's basically an all expenses paid tour for us. Yeah. Um, we get to travel around the world being young people um, and, and all, all that we have to do is sing. Um, it's an incredible, incredible opportunity. Um, and I'm really grateful that I was able to have that through Harvard. Um, and you are right that Harvard, I, I think a lot of people um, assume that the people at Harvard uh, don't really party, um, that they aren't really as social as, say, uh, people at other colleges. Um, and I think while it's true that Harvard certainly doesn't have as much of a party culture um, as other schools, people do get crazy um, at this institution, without a doubt. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, like, 18 to 22-year-olds are going to be 18 to 22-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. It's it's cool how both of you um, found the community here to be such a valuable thing, and that, that yeah, it's a it is in very many ways a, a funnel of uh, towards some of the smartest people in the world, and so um, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it, yeah, yeah, the, it, it's it's crazy thinking about. Um, your ability to be able to go from finding such little meaning, Kenneth, um, first two years to being able to be like, I found what I was looking for at that. That's so if we can get more of the doors open for young people to be able to find that meaning at young ages, um, so that they don't, you know, drop out, but that they keep going and find, um, the right people to surround themselves with that they find interest in. So you two found each other and the co-founders as the Harvard Undergraduate Science of Psychedelics Club, short for, we'll do Psychedelics Club for short, or Science of Psychedelics Club for short. Yes, yes. And the big why here, let's get to this big why. It makes sense with biophysics and neuroscience and consciousness. You guys both are obviously in the melting pot of those fields. Um, so give us the big why on the club. Yeah, so I, I guess first I'll give a little bit of history about the club. Um, there were uh, sort of two independent uh, streams of thought that coincided with each other. Um, so a friend of mine, uh, Andrew Zuckerman, and I um, wanted to create the Harvard Consciousness Club. This was sort of around the time, this was uh, last semester, my fall semester of my junior year, um, when I realized that I wanted to create my own social group on campus to really be able to delve deeply into these questions about consciousness. Um, and so Andrew and I were thinking about starting this Harvard Consciousness Club. Uh, around the same time, uh, JJ was uh, a filing, filing for official approval for the Harvard Science of Psychedelics Club. Uh, JJ, Zuck, uh, uh, Andrew goes uh, for Zuck for short. Um, JJ, Zuck, and I realized that we had a lot of mutual shared interests um, in the sort of intersection of psychedelics and consciousness, so we decided to merge into um, the uh, Harvard Undergraduate Science of Psychedelics Club. Um, and uh, we've been hosting meetings since uh, February of this year, so we're only less than three months old right now. Um, the big why, um, phenomenal question. I mean, uh, for me, I'm principally interested in this vast enigma of what consciousness is. Um, I think psychedelics right now are the primary tool that we have um, for readily and um, I suppose, easily accessing um, altered states of consciousness. Um, we also have deep meditative practices that can lead to altered states, but oftentimes a great deal of training uh, and practice is necessary in order, to, uh, in order to access those states of consciousness through meditation. Um, I think psychedelics um, are uh, an easy uh, and also, I guess, uh, accessible tool um, for accessing uh, those states, yeah. Um, quick disclaimer: uh, the uh, we're not 
encouraging the irresponsible use of any of these psychedelic substances at all because they are very strong substances. Uh, they are contraindicated for certain groups of people, um, like people with schizophrenia and, and uh, other um, bipolar, for instance. The, it's not understood how they interact with these things until it is understood it's probably a good idea to be risk averse in that way. Uh, also, traditionally, these substances, when they've been used in indigenous communities, for instance, like ayahuasca and peyote and stuff like that, they are used with a very uh, conscientious vehicle. They're used in ritual fashion. They are used with a, a guide with them. And that has always been considered a very important aspect of their, of their usage. So do not just kind of go crazy, like off the wall with, with these powerful substances. Um, so I'll give also just a bit of history about what happened sort of before the two clubs became one. Um, I've always been very interested in the 60s, in the counterculture, in the values that people were trying to spread at those times, and the music, it, it, very close to my heart, the music from that time. Um, and so I was reading a book called the uh, Harvard Psychedelics Club about the sort of counterculture crew at Harvard in the 60s that really helped launch um, the psychedelic involvement in the counterculture, who were uh, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, who would later become Ram Dass after um, going to India and uh, pursuing spirituality in that way. Um, so I was reading that book and I, I found it very interesting. It made me want to get more into sort of the history. And uh, at this point, I didn't really realize how important psychedelics in my opinion now are, are um i saw that there's a conference in new york called the horizons um psychedelics science of psychedelics conference they do this every year i thought that's interesting i'll go see what that's about so i went to that uh and it's essentially a conference where they present all of the modern clinical research going on psychedelics because if if your uh, viewers aren't familiar after the 60s psychedelics were banned uh because of the you know the craziness that occurred, although it's probably not so much because of the craziness that occurred as it was because of the uh, threat to the power structures that the counterculture and the anti-war movement was causing. Um, so it was banned, they were banned completely, not just for consumption, but for study, even though they were being studied for um, a wide variety of illnesses with incredible effectiveness, uh, alcoholism, depression, um, all sorts of, you know, all addictions really, nicotine addiction. Um, so in the early 2000s, that uh, ice finally melted and the first new research on psychedelics started. Um, and I didn't know any of this until I went to this conference. And the conference showed just such remarkable results for treating PTSD and so many of these uh, diseases that are not improving in the modern world. Mental illness, our treatments for mental illnesses are not getting much better. Uh, SSRIs are only somewhat better than placebos in treating depression, for instance. And that immediately made me recognize that this was going to be a very important, um, an important thing to get rid of the stigma around these medicines and l let people engage with them rationally and scientifically. Uh, also, I came across a study showing that um, use of psychedelics is correlated with increased politically liberal attitudes, increased anti-authoritarian attitudes, increased um, uh, concern uh, or sense of stewardship toward the environment, and really importantly, an increase uh, in trait openness, with the personality trait of openness, which they've never discovered other substances being able to alter these personality traits after the age of 20 or something like that. Um, and when I saw that, I realized that the, the all of these problems I list in the beginning, I ultimately, in my opinion, are can be drawn back to the fact that uh, people are not open enough. And so that was the real trigger for me to be like, okay, I need to create an official body to get this going. And after a lot of effort uh, trying to find advisors for the club, people were very hesitant to, to be official advisors for this club at the college. Um, I was able to formally start the Science of Psychedelics Club. Then dur as, during that process, I connected with uh, Kenneth and Zuck, and um, that has sort of led where, to where we are now. Um, so that's, that's the backstory there, yeah. Whoa, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot there. Um, all right, on a on a very deeply uh, spiritual and consciousness side of things we have with consciousness being this massive enigma we have on a spiritual oneness uh, unity side there's a lot of uh, of geopolitical pressures and power pressures preventing since the 60s uh, this type of a, of a movement from coming to fruition hit us on uh, on on a little bit on that we're, we're, I want to hear your thoughts on that on just uh, like why that has happened, why there was this kind of backlash and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and also actually here, let me um, let me clarify. Um, 
um, give us give us an an idea of of both why from why why since the sixties was there the view of the influence of psychedelics causing openness and that potentially causing some of the more openness in geopolitics and that type of thing. And then let's lead that up until 2020, really, until around now and where we see openness and geopolitics heading in the future. So I think uh, a lot of people don't understand the degree to which psych the psychedelic um psychedelics uh leaving the laboratory and entering into you know recreational consumption with the youth of that time contributed to the the movements that were happening at that time you can see it in the music you can see it in the clothes people were wearing you can see it in the spiritual traditions people were embracing much to their parents uh chagrin they the total transformation of values from their parents generation uh and the sense of unity that they cult that they tend to cultivate during these experiences the sense of uh oneness with other human beings, the sense of transcending yourself and your like your national ties and so on. Uh, that was a huge spark for the anti-war movement and the anti-war movement was a huge thorn in Richard Nixon's side. And one of the ways that they found that they could interrupt these movements um, was by tackling these substances. So they passed laws to, I mean, this is more or less on record now, Richard Nixon, an aide of Richard Nixon's has uh, provided a quote saying that they banned, uh, they they started the initial ban of these drugs so that they could, not just psychedelics, but also uh, heroin and um, cannabis and others, um, so that they could interrupt specifically the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. Uh, so the political implications of these substances are not small. I, I think that they were a large driver in sort of the uh, unrest in a positive way. There needed to be unrest at that time because we were fighting an unethical, unethical war. We were uh, not thinking about the real impact of our actions on the global uh, future. And so these things were cultivating an unrest that powers at that time were not comfortable with. And that was a large reason why they were cracked down. Yeah. In 2020 now. And then in 2020 now, um, I think the... I. 2020 now is not going to be too different from the 60s then, I don't think. I mean, obviously, we're in a different culture now that's somewhat less uh, repressive. It is somewhat less um, hostile towards uh, new ideas and openness, which is, is good. But it is not, obviously, a perfectly open society or a perfectly loving society or a perfectly unified society. So those same things, when those ideas try to force their way into a world that has not embraced them yet, it, there will be repercussions of that, especially because they make people skeptical of hierarchy. They make people, I mean, I shouldn't say they make people, but they tend to make people more skeptical of hierarchy. Um, they tend to make people more concerned with the environment, which of course is now an even more pressing issue than it was in the 60s. Um, so I think the, I don't think there is going to be another sort of widespread use of them amongst like a counterculture. Um, for a number of reasons, but even just the therapeutic use of them, which is what will probably legal, be legalized in the near future, uh, will help transform people's attitudes on uh, all, all of these topics because they will help people, I think, be op more open-minded, which is yeah. the crucial part of it. Yeah, I don't know if you have anything to... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I can't speak as much to the um, current geopolitical situation of the world is JJ can uh, just because of my lack of knowledge in that department but what I will say is that I think that th uh, there are three um, aspects of psychedelic experience that are worth noting in relation to JJ's comment about openness um, number one is uh, ego death so a sort of sense of dissolution of self uh, number two um, is a sense of oneness um, with other people and with the world generally and also humanity. Um, and third, I think, is uh, just a sense of awe, wonder, and compassion. And those three are all linked to each other. They aren't really three separate aspects of um, psychedelic experiences. If you have a really profound psychedelic experience, um, all three of those things could happen to you in one trip. Um, 
what I will say about um, society right now is that I think that we still live in a society where we fundamentally think that we are separate from other people. Uh, that um, we are sort of isolated minds that exist in isolated bodies um, that are fundamentally distinct from the other minds and bodies that we see uh, in the world. Um, and I don't want to get too philosophical, but I, I think that a lot of this um, does have its roots in um, the sort of Western philosophical tradition, um, start, starting with Descartes, um, positing that we, uh, that the I is fundamentally separate from the world, that I and the world um, are two uh, completely distinct categories that cannot be unified with each other. Um, so I think a psychedelics can really help to promote a sort of mindset in which that apparent boundary um, breaks down, um, where we really do see ourselves as a part of the world um, rather than uh, as separate from it. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Just quick on both your points there that were so, that were so good. We had both the importance of actually today, hopefully having the widespread use of, of technology that is in our pockets now can hopefully catalyze the oneness revolution faster, hopefully now. I think it's quite possible that we could get there plus all of the, um, the transit that we're making towards the legalization and the medicinal use. Um, so hopefully we can, we can get there. And then, yes, the ego death, the feelings of oneness, these are so critical and then the yeah the the separation the illusion of separation so this is a very interesting balance because we have to keep ourselves there has to be some ego to function yeah and then there also has to be uh, some ego to dissolve otherwise too much of the ego can drive us to a point of, of losing touch with the ecosystems of other humans and the planet that we live in so yeah jj you wanted to say some stuff Oh, I was just going to add um, one kind of amusing anecdote about how powerful politically uh, people involved with in the counterculture movement in the 60s uh, thought these substances were was um, I learned this in the documentary The Sunshine Makers, which is about um, Nick Sands and Tim Scully, who were two of the chemists sim synthesizing the vast majority of the LSD during the counterculture movement in the 60s. Uh, and they had a very concerted effort to synthesize. Uh, first of all, they produced a lot of this for free because they felt that they were doing it as a way to uh, change the world, not as a way to make money, which is an interesting fact. Um, but they very much wanted to get their product behind the uh, the um, iron wall, uh, the, the wall, the USSR essentially. They wanted to get as much of their uh, of their psychedelics that they were producing into the USSR um, because they felt that it could cultivate an anti-authoritarian uh, perspective that would lead to the crumbling of these authoritarian regimes and end the Cold War. And they believed that that was like a very crucial um, political. Uh, objective that their work was uh, moving towards. Wow. Yeah. The, how crazy would that be to drop a bunch of LSD in the Middle East? <laughs> you know, drop, a, dro yeah, drop a bunch of LSD in North Korea and in, uh, you know, it's, it's just hard to, it's hard to say though, because there's so many, um, issues with the 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 geopolitics you can't just yeah drop it into venezuela and be like ah it's going to sort itself out it's a uh, but but at the same time it's it's funny you know when you think about the united nations and when you think about working with them on a little microdose at the general assembly you know what would happen right what would happen with a little meditation plus a microdose and some uh med some some tibetan singing bowls and some yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah yeah no i mean i mean one idea that i've thought about uh facetiously is um what would happen if you got donald trump kim jong-un bashar al-assad and other leaders of the world to all trip acid at the same time i mean and and have it on video i mean it's never going to happen right <laughs> Um, but just, just, just imagine, yeah. just imagine. Yeah. Yeah. That is, we're going to make that happen. That's good. It's going to happen. We're going to, we're going to get there. You think 2020 is crazy, right? But just wait a couple more years down the line, Gen Z are going to be roaring with their technology and they're going to be relentless with their pushes towards this oneness and their kit. And that that's just, it's just going to keep, man, 
to kids that are born that have only known the internet is some crazy stuff. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And just their ability to communicate about things that matter to them, I think could potentially catalyze that geopolitical oneness that we that we so desperately need but then we have to balance in the competition right the innovation and the competition you still want people to be able to like compete for the edge of science yeah yeah, yeah. i was just gonna say um uh we of course aren't the first people to have thought of oh what if all the world leaders had this experience of oneness uh alan ginsburg the beat poet um the first time he was administered lsd by timothy leary uh he, he said, oh my God, this was before the hippie movement. He said, we're going to start a movement. It's going to be based on love and peace and unity. And then he tried to get Timothy Leary uh, to get Mao on the phone. He said, call up Mao. I'm going to tell him that we're doing peace now. <laughs> so yeah, that's a very funny story about Allen Ginsberg's uh, takeaway from it, which really did foreshadow the, the years that were just about to follow those early, the early 60s. People did not know what was going to happen in the late 60s yet. I... I I'm really just, I have such a, I have a strong desire to want to talk about this in terms of breaking down hierarchies. Uh, there's a lot of competence in hierarchies, right? You can even make a hierarchy of spirituality and say that who are the spiritual leaders, right? They've practiced the most meditation, connection, all that is, whatever. But then there's also competence hierarchies. Okay, those that have brought forth maybe the most um, reductions of suffering, right? You can frame competence in different ways. But then you can also talk about it money, right? There's 1,500 billionaires and they're at the top, right? Um, so to be able to take, yeah, Davos or the UN or whoever is at the top of this power uh, hierarchy and be able to 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 get a change in in unity, but keep competition roaring and innovation at the edge of science is something that is really crucial to catalyze. You guys have done you know nine events now in just the last three months. Everything from a Zen monk and a psychonaut speaking, and that was about 150 people were there, all the way to Rick Doblin talking from maps, all the way to holotropic breathwork. So teach us about kind of what the roadmap is like building this community and what the experience has been with it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think I speak for all the founders, uh, who Andrew's not here. Um, when I say that we were surprised, very pleasantly surprised that we had such a big community turn out for our first event. Like you said, about 150. We uh, were very pleased to see that. We didn't realize that there was that much interest on campus and in the in the Boston area. Um, so I think the roadmap for this club really, because we didn't just do this because we wanted to talk to other people about this thing. I think we all had goals that largely overlap but weren't identical. But um, at least for me, one of the large goals is to get the the science that people are studying take more seriously and harvard since it was one of the first places where these things really left the lab and uh timothy leary and ram Dass were both fired from their positions at harvard they were professors there um i think symbolically getting it taken seriously again at harvard getting ideally um scientific research on the topic uh jump started again at harvard would be a huge victory um if that's what comes from the club that would be something that i uh I'm very proud of, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, completely second everything that JJ said. Um, I think it would be wonderful if we could get more psychedelic research in academia. Um, psychedelics are such an understudied topic given the tremendous amount of potential that they have. I mean, I very strongly believe that there is so much that we can learn about the brain um, from a more advanced study of psychedelics. I mean, we've really only just even begun to scratch the surface. Um, and this is primarily due to the many decades um, in which psychedelics were accessible to the public, but um, just were not researched. Um, due to the, uh, primarily due to the stigma associated with it, um, many uh, universities were not willing to, to fund research on psychedelics. Um, so we're just now starting to see um, research on psychedelics being done at institutions like uh, Yale, Johns Hopkins. There's a, lo there's a lot of promising research going on in the UK. Uh, I believe the Center for Psychedelic Research was just established at the, last week? yeah, last, last week uh, at the Imperial College London. Um, 
Yeah, uh, to my knowledge, Harvard still doesn't really have uh, any ongoing research uh, on at least on at least the scientific effects uh, of psychedelics. Um, it would be wonderful to see more researchers um, here at Harvard um, uh, doing work on psychedelics. Yeah, I see your you know your roadmap is a lot of uh, just really wanting to push the the not only the edge of, of psychedelics but also get the public more engaged in how um, the importance of it for consciousness for neuroscience for spirituality for oneness like I love that a lot about you guys that like you I can really feel that from you in the way that you communicate it and I'm looking forward to what you build. Um, I want to have you guys tackle a question that is very similar, um, but both of you tackling it from a different way. For Kenneth, from an edge of the enigma that is consciousness, what are some of your best guesses? And for JJ, what makes matter living versus not living? This is uh, a huge question uh, and one that I'm not sure that I can do sufficient justice to um, in, in the span of a short interview. Um, what I will say is that the debate about consciousness, at least in philosophical circles, has primarily boiled down to two competing worldviews. Um, there are the materialists who argue um, that consciousness is a product of brain activity. Um, there are some philosophers who will even venture so far as to say that consciousness is just an illusion. Um, sometimes they use the word epiphenomenon, which means that it's sort of just like a secondary byproduct um, of brain activity that doesn't really have any sort of causal influence. And then on the other hand, you have idealists um, who argue that really everything is just uh, sort, of a, uh, sort of a projection of your own consciousness, um, that there is no external world that is indivisible from your own consciousness. Um, and I suppose implicitly having grown up uh, in a community of uh, pretty materialist scientists, um, both of my parents were civil engineers, um, I guess I implicitly subscribed to the materialist worldview, although I didn't really think much about it. Uh, and then after reading The Power of Now and exposing myself to a lot of ideas in Eastern spirituality, I became much more receptive to the idealist view. Um, and these are deep philosophical questions um, for which it's hard to find much of a resolution. Um, uh, I, I guess right now I'm attracted to two big views. Um, the first is uh, panpsychism, um, which holds that uh, everything is conscious. Um, so there's this sort of uh, huge uh, chasm, I think, uh, between uh, the material uh, physical activity that is happening in the brain uh, and subjective conscious experience. Uh, for me, at least, it's incredibly difficult to see how you could get subjective experience um, from the activity of neurons, no matter how complex and highly organized they are. I think one of the um, ways of resolving this issue is to believe that everything has a, a conscious experience um, at some fundamental level. Um, how exactly that's the case, um, it's, it's very hard to work out and it's certainly a very controversial view. Uh, the second major view that I'm attracted to is this idea called um, dual aspect monism. Um, and this basically tries to say, well maybe it's misguided to try to boil down the universe to either uh, purely physical things or purely mental things. Uh, maybe the physical and the mental are just two opposite sides of the same coin. And you ask, you know, what is that one coin? It's also another big question. Uh, for me, I'm sort of inclined to believe that there's something akin to a universal consciousness that everything is participating in, um, that the universe is one sort of vast intelligence um, or consciousness um, that we really can't quite comprehend except perhaps through mystical and spiritual experiences that can be accessed through meditation, psychedelics. Um, and um, yeah, so, so I guess those are the questions that I'm thinking about primarily right now. Um, so your question was what sort of distinguishes living matter from non-living matter. That is a big open question in the area of biophysics that I'm most interested in uh, doing research uh, in after I graduate. Um, it's not understood. We don't know the answer to why are some systems living? Because I mean, when we say why are they living, we mean 
uh, that these living systems have very unique properties. Um, you know, uh, these complex systems have self-organization, spontaneous self-organization. Um, they have coherent energy transfer over long distances in ways that we have not been able to create synthetically. And so there's a lot of open questions about what physical and mathematical principles underlie these systems that we call living and uh, how do they work? How can we take advantage of that? Can we use them to make our own living things without actually needing um, it to come from other living things? And that would have a lot of uh, repercussions on like our understanding of how life started, for instance. If we understand what life is, we have a much clearer idea of where we can narrow down how, where, where to explore um, for its origins. Uh, so uh, I'll give you an example of some of the different like ways people think about living matter in terms of as physics. Um, when you have, say, uh, water, there's when and you expose certain pressures and certain temperatures and stuff, it can convert to ice. And that's what we call a phase transition. And people now are doing research on phase transitions in living matter, which would be like what sort of effective temperatures would, it's not an actual temperature, but some an analogy to the physical concept of temperature in a living, in a biological system causes it to undergo uh, phase transitions and one would be like there's a certain uh, f like phase of the bulk material of the living system that is say homeostatic so nothing's going on and it's just kind of how living tissue normally is and then if it undergoes this bulk phase transition uh, maybe it has to do with the water maybe it has to do with the uh, like the the electronic structure of proteins or something in the cell then that can trigger a change in um, the physical properties of diffusion and stuff throughout that shifts the whole functionality of the system towards uh, maybe inflammation and maybe cellular pr proliferation. And then uh, it might undergo a phase transition back after that is no longer necessary. So there do, do seem to be sort of physical principles that biological systems um, m manipulate in order to cause these physical transformations uh, on sort of a small scale. Uh, that's a very interesting active area of research. And like I said, we don't know the answers to uh, how these living systems are different from non-living systems, but there's definitely a lot of interesting research going on. Um, and if we, once we do understand, say, this phase transition idea, this idea that it tr you can map these physical concepts onto the biological concept that are going on, it opens a question of, can we use that to treat disease? Maybe a chronic state of, like, cancer is a chronic state of cellular proliferation. Um, maybe we can find ways to modify the the bulk like statistical structure of, and the bulk physics going on in the cells to move away from that, which is an area that we is still very speculative and we have no idea about really. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah. These are, these are great answers at young ages for tackling hard, yeah, hard, some of the hardest challenges that we face. I, I do have a, a strong tendency to feel um, the most connected to all that is and feeling the oneness through meditation, through psychedelics. And when I do that, I think and feel that we need to help more people feel this. Mm because then that can get us closer to that unity if the children that are born also dive deeper into that feeling as well. And that's a whole nother conversation about what age do we think these um, potentially psychedelic experiences are good to come in at, um, how to titrate things like that, how to do it with a psychotherapist, all these types of things. Um, there's all those, all those questions. Um, and also on a... On a, um, I wonder. Just on a quick note on on phase change, I'm just I'm interested to see if if there's potentially a way to um, call a awareness expansion a phase change. That could be very interesting. Your thoughts? Yeah. There is some cool. So I, I'm a big fan of trying to use like the analogies of statistical me mechanics. Um, and with biophysics, is not exactly an analogy since there is non-equilibrium physical thermodynamics going on in these systems and we don't understand how that works but in other things it is more of an analogy um like trying to understand uh, uh one example would be like in there are certain bacterial colonies where they've discovered what they can call an effective temperature based on like the back and forth motion of the bacteria and stuff like that just like with particles and through this effective temperature they can predict phase transitions of these bacterial colonies where they'll under a certain effective temperature they'll spontaneously coalesce into um, spore form, which is like ice, and above a certain effective temperature, they will melt and become sort of more like a fluid. Um, so there are a lot of interesting analogies here. And they've done this kind of 
analogical thinking with cyclical mechanics in the brain, thinking about the brain as an entropic, like uh, the number of novel states that the brain can reach from a given brain state would be considered roughly the entropy of that brain state. And so if your brain is in a sort of highly creative, a lot of possibilities that the brain can enter into from a given state, it's in a highly entropic state. And there's a lot of work uh, or and they would call that the effective temperature. A, a low temperature brain would be something that cannot access very many novel states from its current state. There's a lot of work trying to talk about psychedelics in terms of how they raise this temperature of the brain or they, they increase the entropy in the brain and thinking about certain diseases, particularly OCD, depression, and all manner of addictions as conditions where the brain is not... Uh, too high entropy, but too low entropy. It gets fixed into states that cannot reach new states. It gets uh, essentially trapped in the current state as it is, uh, frozen, if you want to continue on with that low temperature analogy. Um, and psychedelics are sort of able to break up that, uh, that low entropy state and allow them to reach new um, experiences that they've been shut out of since they've developed these illnesses. And that's actually thought to be one of the central reasons why it's so effective for this specific category of diseases, um, remarkably effective for this specific category of disease. I know uh, for nicotine in uh, preliminary trials, they had an 80% quitting rate, which is enormous compared to the uh, quitting rate of people given just placebo. Um, depression, it's uh, been shown to have remarkably effective results, much more than any, any other medicine that we've really discovered. And it's probably because the brain is uh, just stuck in a, f it can't get out, it can't undergo this phase transition out of its current state, essentially. Yeah, yeah, I'm so, I'm so, so happy that we got to this, uh, to this last part on, on, on that. That's getting the mind to phase transition to, um, to states of awareness that can alleviate suffering, that can augment our awareness towards oneness. I mean, these are some of the most crucial things that we could be studying and we are not doing it enough just scratching for now the surface you're just scratching okay guys two quick questions on the way out are we in a simulation uh this is uh <laughs> also an incredibly difficult question to tackle um What I, okay, so I, what I will say is that the universe is very, very finely tuned, it seems, for the conditions of life. Um, so in order for the universe to have begun in the smooth arrangement of matter that um, it consisted of um, immediately after the Big Bang, um, I believe the, uh, uh, the physicist uh, Roger Penrose once calculated that there was a 1 in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123 chance um, that the universe was in that smooth arrangement of matter uh, immediately after the Big Bang. Um, other uh, conditions um, in the universe, um, like uh, the constants that mediate uh, a lot of the fundamental forces in the universe, are very, very finely tuned for life. If you had altered them by, say, 0.001 units, then uh, intelligent life could have never emerged. Um, we do seem to live in a universe um, that in some way uh, seems to have been uh, designed uh, for intelligent life. Now, uh, this gets into many questions about, you know, um, whether the universe was intelligently designed. A lot of people are um, pretty reluctant to accept that idea. Um, so, I'm not going to posit that there was uh, any sort of uh, external force uh, that did uh, sort of um, uh, that, that did design life in the way that it did, but it seems to be a very curious feature uh, of the initial conditions in which the universe began, um, uh, that they were so, so specific, um, and perhaps specific in such a way that they did lead to uh, intelligent life. Um, so I think that probably the most compelling argument for the idea that we do live in a simulation um, is this fact, um, uh, that, that the universe is so finely tuned for life. In the sense that all of our experience is internally generated and that our brain is, you know, constantly sampling reality and then making an inference about what it must be like, um, 
which is highly relevant to psychedelics, interestingly, because it's thought that maybe those somehow interrupt that process. And so there's a lot more sort of uh, the inferences become a lot more um, less correlated. So like the your brain will infer more distant concepts from its current state, essentially. Um, so in the sense that we are constantly sampling and inferring about reality and that we're not actually looking at reality, we're looking at what our brain is filling in the details, we are definitely living in, uh, in a simulation. As far as whether the physical world is a simulation in the sense that, like, was it designed by a, something outside of it that tinkered with it to make it as it is, I suspect no. I don't have a great, I don't think anyone has a great reason for suspecting yes or no. I'd say I'd suspect no mostly on spiritual grounds. Um, just the the fact that so many mystics throughout the ages have had intense experiences with, with, with what they felt with strong conviction was ultimate reality. Uh, it's obviously not scientific evidence, but it's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. And how about what is the most beautiful thing in the world? I've sort of an easy and somewhat basic answer to this, which would be music. I I spend a lot of time listening to music and it's one of the most sort of aesthetically important things to me in my life, yeah. And tell us a little bit more about yeah, why. Uh, sure, about why, interesting. Um, I think music is able to invoke emotion uh, extremely strongly, even when those emotions aren't necessarily like what you're feeling in the moment. A sad song can really make you sad, and I think that's a very beautiful thing. Um, or a happy song can really make you happy, or a, a song that makes you feel revolutionary can really make you feel revolutionary, and that's very cool. Um, also, hmm. yeah, I think in large part it's because of the emotionality of it, but also there's a more abstract quality to it that is hard to put my finger on. Uh, but it has to do with the fact that it's very absorbed. Uh, it, it can absorb you into it in an almost meditative way, at least for me. I'm not. I'm sure that's an experience some people have and some people don't have. Um, but it can make me unconcerned with my current whatever's going on and fully pay attention to it. And there are very uh, few other things except maybe like a phenomenal book or something that can really make me pay attention to the details in the way that music can. Yeah, I definitely agree with JJ about the power of music. Um, for me, the most beautiful thing that there is um, is the ability to consciously experience the present moment. Um, I, I guess a lot of my appreciation for this comes from having read The Power of Now back when I was 17. Um, but I think that the, the mind is constantly imposing, whether we realize it or not, um, a huge, huge filter on our conscious experience. Um, we selectively pick out certain stimuli in the environment and we focus on those exclusively at the expense of the sort of broader totality of our conscious experience. Um, and I think that a lot of that filter um, stems from this sort of attachment that we have um, psychologically to the flow of time. Um, we're constantly thinking about the future, uh, about planning for things, um, and we're also constantly thinking about the past, ruminating, regretting, and so on and so forth. Um, oftentimes our attention is not completely rooted inside the present moment. Um, there is a beautiful, beautiful moment when you realize that your entire life has been experienced in the present. There is nothing that has occurred for you outside the present. Uh, even the act of sort of anticipating the future or regretting the past happens in the present. And that's a very, very deeply liberating feeling. Um, it's not something that's easy to communicate uh, through words or intellectually. It's really something you, that you just sort of have to experience for yourself. Um, and uh, God, it, it just it just fills you with the utmost uh, awe and wonder um, for how beautiful the universe is and how beautiful life is. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, great answers, you guys. This has been such an awesome episode. I've loved talking to you both. You guys are young and ambitious and pursuing such a critical field of pushing the edge. We, we're going to do this together. JJ, Kenneth, thank you guys so much for coming on to the show. Huge thank you to both of you. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, it's been such an honor. And we love smart young people. Let's get more smart young people building around the world, everyone. Let's push them. Let's motivate them. Let's get them executing and making our world a better place. Let's give them the right mentors, the right resources that they need to succeed, the right basic physiological needs is so, so critical. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Huge thank you. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below. Let us know your thoughts. Psychedelics, consciousness, spirituality, oneness, neuroscience. Let's get talking to our families, our communities, our coworkers, people online about it. Get sharing these messages around the world. Let's do it, everyone. Check out the links below. Definitely sign up for their the club's mailing list, the Harvard Undergraduate Science of Psychedelics Club, their mailing list link is below. It's bit.ly forward slash Harvard hyphen psychedelics. Also, all of JJ and Kenneth's links are in the bio below as well. Check them out. Support the artists, entrepreneurs, and organizations around the world that you believe in. Support them, help them grow, support simulation. Our links are below as well so we continue doing cool things like coming to Cambridge and doing interviews. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. We love you so much. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you soon. Peace.